0: Hello. Today on The Loopcast, I have David Sturman, and we're discussing his paper, Defining Endless Wars, the First Step Towards Ending Them. So one of the reasons we wanted to do this show, and it might come off as obvious for people of a certain generation of people who are Zoomers or millennials, which is how how to deal with the wars in Afghanistan in Iraq, or what would become Iraq, Syria, and sort of that part of the Middle East. And with the new administration, there seems to be an opportunity to have this discussion again. And what we wanted to do was have this discussion and kind of look at the metagame and the framing of the discussion. How we frame it affects how we discuss it, so to speak. And my guest today has written this uh, great paper on sort of defining this meme that's been attached to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the idea of an endless war. And the reason I use meme is because in the research for the show, I couldn't find a really concrete definition. And in, within David's paper, he breaks it down and kind of looks at it and tries to pull out what is useful for analysis, what is useful for policy, and kind of challenges how we think about it and how we should go forth with it. So today, we're going to be discussing that. So please welcome my guest, David Stern. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. I want to start off with kind of a basic question, which is, in your view, what is the origins of this idea of endless war? Where, do, where, where did we start off with this? You know, I, You know, at the top of the show, I kind of said it was a meme, and I meant that not just in a way of how it conveys an assumed meaning, but I couldn't really find an origin. It just kind of popped into the lexicon or the vocabulary and I couldn't find a concrete definition. So if you could you know, give us a history of that phrase, the endless war.
1: Definitely. So I'll begin by saying, I would not claim to have found where the term originates. I'm not even sure there, one could identify an original moment where this term or concept enters the culture. I think, in some ways, it is actually a pretty self explanatory concept that probably appears in a variety of places based on just how people describe the experience of particular wars. However, I think today we generally think of it as a general phrase for the wars that occurred after 9-11, either the war on terror as a whole, or sometimes these wars are broken into particular conflicts that are then often labeled as endless wars, whether that's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, other areas like Yemen or Somalia. And I think that's sort of the core moment for the discussion now. But my objection to what's been a rash of commentary, particularly, I think, over 2020, is that it's not correct to view it as a new sort of talking point or political talking point that emerges during the sort of Trump administration at a particular moment of contestation over a couple of these particular wars, specifically Afghanistan and Syria. I think that's why we're talking about it now to a large extent, is an increase in usage, in part because President Trump or then President Trump embraced the term, but it's not really new. And so for one example of that, let me just give a quote that actually doesn't appear in the report, although I wish I had thought to quote this, but... When we met here four years ago, America was bleak in spirit, depressed by the prospect of seemingly endless war abroad and of destructive conflict at home. Now that's not President Trump giving his convention address in 2020. That's actually President Nixon's second inaugural, the opening or almost opening line. And he's talking about Vietnam. And if you go back to what people were talking about around Vietnam, you see this term pop up in books on the conflict. You see it in actual strategic discussions. Les go the defense and foreign policy intellectual, uses the phrase endless war in his 1972 testimony on efforts to end and the state of the Vietnam War. He writes using that term in his book, The Irony of Vietnam, which in large part argues that The actual objective of the Vietnam War was to just continue to have endless war until things might change so it would become more favorable. And you also see it, I thought particularly of interest, there's a monthly review article which is a Marxist magazine from 1969 titled Vietnam's Endless War and it actually quotes a historian talking about endless war in terms of Germany and Germany's experience in World War I and World War II, which is a long way of me saying that we've been here before. And I think this the reason people refer to endless war so often, and at this moment, is that it's a way of expressing something about the characteristic of a war. And in my view, that characteristic is very present in today's wars,
0: almost undeniably so. So from a policy perspective, when you set out to define endless war, how do you, what are you looking at? How do you, what is the sort of the sort of the elements that are going into your definition? Like, what do you, what are you thinking about? Is it troop withdrawals? Is it how, you know, the narrative, the political narrative of the conflicts, what are those threads that you're you're pulling on and working towards defining what is an endless war or what makes an endless war?
1: Yeah, for me, the way I define it is that wars take on an endless character when two conditions are met. First, a belligerent in the conflict has adopted objectives that it cannot achieve. And second, the second factor is that belligerent is neither at risk of being defeated and destroyed, nor at risk of being denied access to the battlefield. So it creates this condition where they, the belligerent in question seeks to pursue objectives that just aren't going to happen, and is also fully capable of continuing to use military or other forms of force that could be considered war, even if it's by a covert intelligence agency force, in pursuit of those objectives, but we will never achieve them. And where that persists over time, and in particular, where that persists without a clear explanation of how the objectives will eventually become achievable, that's what I think is endless now. So, an endless war would just be a war where that endless characteristic has emerged. And going back to your first question, I think this is actually relatively rooted in Western culture and strategic discussions. So everyone loves to cite 1984 and Orwell's writing and I think it's somehow we've forgotten that in 1984 he talks about sort of the condition of permanent warfare or continuous warfare and the way he describes that is he actually directly differentiates between his fictional concept of this um, permanent war between the super states of 1984, and wars as generally understood that he describes as, quote, in past ages, a war almost by definition was something that sooner or later came to an end, usually an unmistakable victory or defeat. And then he goes on to instead describe the permanent war of the world of 1984 as similar to a battle between ruminant or horrid animals where the horns are set in such a way that the animals cannot actually hurt each other, which I think really encapsulates that sense of war as being endless when a belligerent is pursuing objectives that it can't actually achieve, but are also not actually at risk itself in a way that would prevent it from pursuing those objectives.
0: So when we take the the twin ideas of achievability and objectives, how does that translate to... The sort of the politics of engaging in Afghanistan or Iraq and Syria, because the idea of troop withdrawals keeps coming up. I I remember in the Obama period, it was you know we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan and then we're going to you know you know keep some troops there, pull some out, and that kind of you know that same argument came up during the Trump administration. It was always centered around. Troop withdrawals. So when we when we discuss the ideas of a, of objectives and achievability, what is sort of the political expression of that? Is it simply, you know, this number game, numbers game of troop withdrawals, troop involvement, or is it sort of kind of deeper in you know how we create objectives? You know, the democratization of Iraq, or you know, making Afghanistan a capitalist society or whatever, but work us through that for us.
1: Yeah, I think one of the foremost benefits of thinking of endless war in terms of objectives, which is the core of definition I propose, is that it signals that there is no, sorry, it signals that there's no linear relationship between the number of troops in a country and the process of ending endless wars. You could pursue a war with very few troops in the country. You could pursue a war that at various moments of the war, you actually remove all of the troops from the country or halt airstrikes. In fact, we've seen this in our wars. Obama withdrew U.S. troops from Iraq in 2011, yet returned them back to fight ISIS fewer than three years later. Now, one might see those as two different wars, I think that's a mistake. And one of the reasons it's a mistake is that the actual authorizations that are being drawn upon for why it was okay to return US forces were the same legal authorizations undergirding the counterterrorism military actions before the US withdrawal. And even beyond sort of the just legal question of the 2001 AUMF, the Iraq AUMF as well. Just the objective was the same. It was destroy or eliminate al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Islamic State of Iraq, while now the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham. It's not the enemy is the same. The objectives are largely the same. And to portray sort of that pause or even removal of U.S. troops as having ended the war just doesn't strike me as correct. And we've seen these pauses as well in the drone war in Yemen. There were pauses due to tactical reasons or reassessing intelligence. And we've also seen it in Pakistan, where there's now been more than two years without a publicly reported drone strike in Pakistan. But we don't really know if the war is over because we don't have a sense of what the actual objectives were nor a statement that those objectives have been achieved. So we're left in the spot where maybe the war is over, but it could also just be a tactical pause awaiting the appearance of high-value targets or a pause waiting upon a more favorable Pakistani government or another decision about when it might be worth it to consi- to continue the war. But the actual aim of defeating or destroying al-Qaeda has not been achieved, nor has it been eliminated as the objective and replaced with something else that is claimed to have been achieved.
0: So then... I, what you're describing seems to be carry over administration so we've had bush obama trump and now perhaps biden so politically when we talk about endless war what is wh- what is allowing the pursuit and the the on and off kind of nature of this is it is it simply that domestically you know pursuit of endless war or engagement is less costly than simply stopping engagement or it's sort of negotiations makes it look like there's engagement which you know is politically easier than let's say completely disengaging because i'm kind of struggling with understanding why politically it's just been carried over from You know, the Bush administration was very different from Obama. Obama is very different from Trump and their leadership styles and their sort of arrangement of policy was very different. And yet it has continued since those three. So if you could dig that, like politically, why isn't isn't it costly for leaders to just simply, I mean, I guess uh, to simply disengage and to sort of stop you know, being involved in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria.
1: So I think there are very large debates in political science and those working on and looking at America's counterterrorism wars as to what the politics of them actually are. I think some people believe that there are sort of bureaucratic structures that insulate the national security elite and decision making power from real input from the American public. Another view that I think I tend to subscribe to more is that the American public doesn't want to put ground troops into war. We don't want to repeat the height of the war in Iraq, but we're pretty willing still, or at least it's not very salient to the American public if there's airstrikes, and particularly if there's a sort of low pace of airstrikes that occasionally makes the news but isn't a top political issue. And I think that enables some of this continuation. But one of the things that's rooted in my report that gets to this is it's easy to think about these administrations as having radically different views of the war. And in particular, I think the Obama administration is considered to be a substantial narrowing from the Bush administration. But when we look at one of the factors that I view as driving America's endless wars, specifically the selection of objectives that are expansive or unlimited, meaning seeking the destruction of the enemy in in totality, not just creating a condition short of their destruction, there's actually been quite a bit of continuity So three days after 9-11, or a couple of days after 9-11, Bush publicly describes the objective objective of the war on terror as, our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. Now, this is wildly expansive. And I think even under the Bush administration, it becomes pretty clear that the United States is not going to fight a war against every conceivable terrorist organization. Obama comes in and supposedly narrows it further, but not all that much. For example, Obama says, quote, we've sent a message from the Afghan border to the Arabian Peninsula to all parts of the globe. We will not relent, we will not waver, and we will defeat you. Then Trump comes and during the campaign in 2020, his campaign says that their objective is, quote, wipe out global terrorists who threaten to harm Americans. And then during the campaign, then-candidate Biden said that he would narrowly define our mission. But what was he narrowly defining to us? Still defeating al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So we see this through line of this objective of defeat, and often defeat in globally expansive terms geographically, that persists across each of these administrations. And one of the core findings of this paper or arguments of this paper is that that kind of unlimited objective of defeating a terrorist organization is not really achievable. Certainly we haven't demonstrated we can achieve it now 20 odd years or almost 20 years into these wars. And in my view, it's perhaps not even coherent as an objective.
0: So at the core of this issue, I mean, I think in the paper you lay out sort of the four factors that define counterterrorism or as counterterrorism as the U.S. approaches it. If you could, could you go through those four factors? Because I find them interesting as, as, as this combination of, of kind of threat assessment Or how we assess, you know, being involved in Afghanistan, Iraq, and and sort of engaging in counterterrorism operations or counterterrorism war, but also not only does it speak to like threat assessment, but also how we create objectives and sort of go for achievability. So if you could walk us through those sort of four factors that are kind of that define uh, American, these counterterrorism wars. Yeah,
1: so in the paper I identified these four factors that I think are really the reasons or factors driving endlessness in America's endless wars. And those four factors are, first, the lack of an enemy capable of posing an existential threat or denying the United States access to the battlefield. This is pretty core to the definition that for it to be endless, you have the belligerent that's Chosen the expansive objectives that are unachievable can't be defeated. But I think people often forget when thinking about this that a war can end not just because the United States is victorious, but potentially because the US simply loses. The reason people forget that is that's not really a likely, or in my view, at all existing possibility in the war on terror. The US hasn't faced a territorial threat to the U.S. homeland from even state enemies since at least World War II. And if you look at the work of Imaware and others on this, even the attack on Pearl Harbor was in many ways not considered part of the United States at that moment, seemed more similar to the attack on the Philippines. And during World War II, there, generally there's a sense that the threat to the actual homeland's territorial integrity Can be exaggerated in the way people use that example now. But certainly non-state actors aren't capable of seizing American territory. Al-Qaeda has failed to even conduct a deadly attack in the United States for most of the post-9-11 period. It's inspired attacks, and there's this recent possible case that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula may have coordinated online to a point that it reached direction of uh, the attack in Pensacola, Florida, in 2019. But even its record of conducting or carrying, itself, carrying out attacks itself in the U.S. is so limited that if you include those inspired by jihadists, they've still killed fewer people in the United States than right-wing terrorists or people inspired by far-right views which the U.S. does not view as an existential threat in that way of territorial control. It's also, I mean, as oft stated in these things, similar to the number of people who drown in bathtubs, even at the height of the threat in 2001. So it's unlikely the U.S. is simply going to end this war by losing. The other other factors are... The selection of expansive and unlimited objectives. The more expansive your objectives are, the more difficult they are to achieve. And in this case, I adopt a sort of understanding of objectives that divides them between unlimited objectives that seek the overthrow of an enemy government or the destruction of a terrorist entity in its complete existence. And then limited objectives that are anything short of that. And that's following Donald Stoker's division of limited and unlimited objectives in his book on limited war that came out recently. And then I'd suggest we can also understand limited objectives as either being transformative, trying to shift the conditions of political and economic governance of societies, or disruptive aimed at um, disrupting particular threats or particular imminent threats. So that's the second factor. The third factor is it may be that you have even a limited objective that is conceptually achievable, but you're not clear about what that objective is. So if you have unclear or undefined objectives, that can contribute to endlessness, not because your aims are necessarily unachievable. But because you keep shifting objectives or don't recognize when your objective has actually been achieved, you continue fighting or engage in processes of mission creep where you achieve an objective only to create new ones. And I think the example I give here is that the Afghanistan papers that were reported by the Washington Post provide a lot of comments to the fact that this appears to have been the case in Afghanistan. And then finally, the fourth factor is you can get endlessness, or a factor helping to generate endlessness in America's wars, is a lack of planning for war termination. And here, I think there's often a tendency to think, oh, these objectives are very achievable, say, destroy the territorial form of um, ISIS. But then there's not actually planning for how the U.S. will get out of the conflict Without, without losing the supposed achievement of its objective. If you still have to apply direct military force, it's not actually an accomplished objective. It's an objective that is current still being pursued. And I think that's an area where the U.S. has often failed to develop that war termination plan planning efforts. It certainly exists in some ways, and there's been some great successes. I think the U.S. in many ways developed a relatively effective partner force in Kurds as part of its war on ISIS, but then ran into a failure to sufficiently plan for what that might mean in the broader conflict between Kurdish governance and desire for self-government, the Turkish government that does not view self-government or has not viewed self-government as an acceptable outcome, and the Syrian regime that seeks to reassert control over country. And that produced this aspect where, for example, Trump withdrew or supposedly withdrew forces from parts of northern Syria, but then comes out in opposition to the Turkish move in, saying that the Turkish move in prevents the achievement of stability necessary for the set American objectives in the war on terror, which suggests this problem of the whole war plan is based on a partner that cannot provide security. at least so far, been incapable of integrating that partner into a more permanent vision of how the post-war situation would be or how you would get to a post-war situation without direct U.S. involvement. Now, one of the things, this gets to something I think is worth looking at in terms of current discussions around Afghanistan, which is, it is a workable answer to end U.S. wars or end endless U.S. wars to just say, we're not pursuing these objectives anymore and we're going to pull troops out and um, not come back. But if that's the case, you have to really mean we're not coming back. And what we saw with the counter-ISIS war is that often there are um, conditions that can trigger threats to U.S. interests that continue And if those interests are still seen as worthy war objectives, the war will come back in force rather than actually being ended even by a full withdrawal of U.S. military power.
0: So I want to jump back a little before we get into Afghanistan. So for endless war, the condition to exist, you need, you know, lacking existential threat. The objectives are very expansive unclear, undefined objectives, and there's an absence of an exit strategy. So, well, oh, go ahead. To be clear,
1: I think what you need is objectives that aren't achievable with the inability for the destruction of the belligerent pursuing those objectives. These are the four factors are things that I think have contributed to that being the case in America's wars. But you could have a, and I think in some ways in different U.S. wars that are being fought today, there are different combinations of these four factors that are generating the endlessness. And there may be other factors as well that could help generate endlessness in that sense. But these are the four I think are particularly important. And they're not not always all in existence in each of America's wars. So, for example, I think in my view is that the U.S. objective in the counter-ISIS war in many ways actually very clear. It was, we're going to destroy and defeat um, ISIS. Obama came out and publicly stated that from um, September 10th, when the war was escalated to include, or the authorization was publicly stated, to wage the war in Syria with that objective. And it's been repeated in various forms and formulations, lasting defeat, enduring defeat, ever since. The problem is just. That's not achievable. In contrast, in Yemen, I think we see a situation where a lot of the endlessness is produced by the objective is not clear, but some of the objectives are achievable, say hunt down and kill Anwar al al Waqi, but then there's a failure to determine what the specific objectives that are actually motivating the war are and what the measurable success of those objectives would be in large part because that war was initiated as a covert targeted killing program. Whereas the US war against ISIS was from its beginning overt. So that's just to say there are different routes to endlessness and you can get endlessness without necessarily having all four of these factors.
0: So something that kind of stuck with me from reading the paper was how we do threat assessments because in in some ways you know the the war on terror or whatever you're whatever however it's branded is so expansive and it's you know in each case you know with the Taliban in Afghanistan with ISIS in Syria and Iraq with groups in Yemen you kind of it was kind of just fascinating to me because each each actor or set of adversaries have you know there's they pose a different threat to the United States or potentially a threat or however defined. But you know, this meta question for me kind of emerges, which is how do we assess a threat, right? What what is the process, the understanding, the politics of it? Because it, it seems like, you know, from assessing a threat or a potential threat, then everything else kind of flows from it. The, you know, the objectives, the achievability, the politics. So if you could, you know, dive for us, you know, into this idea of, you know, assessing a threat, how do we establish that a threat is existential or not existential, or what is that threat? How does it, you know, what is the posture of it against the United States? Things like that.
1: Yeah, so I think the way I understand an existential threat would be a threat that actually can destroy the existing United States government. That's what I would describe as an existential threat. Below that, I think we could think in terms of territorial threats that may continue the operations of the U.S. government, but put territory under U.S. control, or territory that is part of the United States under the governance of another power, I think both of those are just universes beyond anything we're talking about with terrorist organizations, and even beyond anything we're really talking about with state enemies, with I guess the exception of if we end up in a nuclear conflict that becomes existential in that manner. But the idea that another power would simply take over or fully destroy the U.S. government seems to be just this crazy world of threat inflation. So beyond that, I think about it in large part in terms of this darkness of the threat, which I'm drawing a bit on Sir Lawrence Friedman's writing on war and choice, that all wars involve a choice of what the objective you're pursuing is. Even wars that are very threatening, there's still a choice on whether or not to fight. And then we have to place where we think the terrorist threats are. And in terms of the threat to Americans or to people inside the United States, my sense is that this is not a stark threat, that since in the post-9-11 era, there's maybe one deadly attack that's been directed by a foreign terrorist organization. That attack killed three people. That if you look at sort of the comparisons of just numbers of deaths, and of course, there are problems with that kind of comparison, but John Mueller's work on the number of people who die, or Americans who die in terrorist attacks, is comparable to such things as the number of people who die in industrial accidents. Or even in 2001, more people die drowning in their bathtub, despite there being the 9-11 attack, large anomaly here for the terrorist threat. And then we can also just look at specific cases. For example, there was a lot of fear over the threat ISIS posed. But even as the United States went to war in ISIS, went to war against ISIS, and I've written about this in a 2019 report on the decision-making to counter ISIS war, the Obama administration and across the government repeatedly comes out and says, we have no evidence of direct or credible threats to the United States homeland from ISIS. So what was really being fought, at least in terms of what is the threat to the U.S. homeland, was a potential threat. It was a preventive war logic. We're going to war to prevent ISIS from gaining the capability to conduct major attacks inside the United States. And that sort of, that preventive logic is a great route to endlessness because you really can't, easily determine when such a preventive objective is actually accomplished. The whole concept of preventive war is rooted in this kind of stretched futurology about what the war might become, given sort of trends or the possibility of growth and the threat. And that makes it very difficult to conceive of war objectives framed as preventive war as something that can be achieved meaningfully. There's some other aspects as well It tends to stretch sort of the geography of the war. It lowers the preventive war logic, also lowers what we're willing to fight for. It no longer has to be an actual existing material threat. And that tends to create just universes of what might be a sufficient threat to the United States to wage war. Now, obviously, there are threats that the United States may care about or interests the US may care about that are not people being killed in the United States or Americans being killed. The United States at least has some level of interest in the stability of Iraq, some interest probably in energy flows, some interest in there not being a genocidal slaving state in the middle of the Middle East. Also, we have an interest in Americans not being held hostage and brutally murdered by terrorist organizations. So we can also think in terms of those objectives, But in terms of the direct threat to the United States and even Americans abroad, the threat from terrorist organizations has been very small and limited and manageable, which I think is actually in many ways a well-accepted idea among people studying terrorism. There may be disagreement about just how manageable or how small, but the vast majority don't think it's an existential threat and tend to see it as more towards these manageable issues. And then regarding threats outside of the homeland, then we just have to think about what objectives are we choosing to fight for? And my problem with some of the things that have been laid out is that they don't seem to be achievable and in choosing to pursue them, we're putting ourselves into these endless conflicts or putting ourselves in isn't even the correct phrasing because it is us who are actively creating them.
0: So something that I kind of have found interesting, the interesting characteristic of these wars is that the legal infrastructure was written 20 years ago. If I, please correct me if I'm wrong, right? So the AUMF for Afghanistan was 2001. And then if I remember correctly, there was another one for Iraq, so 2003. And yet here we are in 2020, and it seems, like, as far as I remember, we're a lot of this involvement is based on that legal, that initial legal infrastructure written in 2001, 2003. So my question is, you know, apart from the politics and the strategic end of things, how, how much does the legal infrastructure inform or permit, you know, the pursuit of endless war? Is it... Because it seems like, you know, just running this through my head, like the strategy, you know, it might be a little easy to pick apart, sort of the the politics around it might be easy to pick apart, but the legal infrastructure seems to be the most difficult thing to sort of remove or to mitigate or to just simply get rid of. If you could dive into that sort of that legal infrastructure that is that might be permitting or not, you know, not permitting pursuit of endless war.
1: Yeah, I think it's huge. And one of my, one of the recommendations I would focus on for any effort to end America's endless wars is that it will likely require um, repealing the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which was always open-ended and as diagnosed by Representative Barbara Lee at the moment had produced this sort of open-ended commitment to conflict without an end in sight and without a focused target, which is a phrasing that is very similar to what I view as the core of this definition of endless war. That said, I think that what that broad legal aspect does is, I think, twofold. One is that it's a statement of, the existence of these expansive objectives that aren't achievable. And I think in that sense, it need's changing as part of a process of rethinking what the actual objective or strategy is. It also, that legal um, structure makes it so there's not sort of the structure that might allow the understanding of when there's sort of a withdrawal and then a return of force, say Iraq between 2011 and 2014 there isn't sort of the necessity of a process around the reintroduction of US force that might allow us to understand it as meaningfully a new war, to go through the process of, well, we took out our forces, we thought we had won, we declared that war over, now there's a new threat, maybe it's even a new threat that comes directly out of who we were fighting before, and then go through the process of, is this new threat requiring warfare or are we willing to pursue other outcomes? And what the authorization does is it short circuits that because the authorization has already been provided in effect in perpetuity. That said, I think we need to be very careful about focusing in on legalisms. You could envision a scenario where the authorization for the use of military force is ended but we continue to pursue these expansive objectives with the president just claiming that he or she has an Article II authority to protect the United States, and that that war power authority is so expansive that it justifies whatever is being done. And I think that would not be, that would not be an end to the endless war. What's core to endless war is the objectives and their achievability The legal aspect is often an expression of that and how we bring those objectives into existence and make ourselves decide what they are. But it's not, the authorization for the use of military force in many ways is a symptom of this broader commitment to destroying Al-Qaeda or destroying the various offshoots or other jihadist organizations, rather than the cause itself of, that objective it's an expression of it not the objective itself
0: so you would see this as more of an issue of the executive that that's the office of the president and everything that's sort of under you know the rule not rule but under the, the purview of the office of the president so you would see it more as an issue of the executive and that part of the government as opposed to sort of lawmaking by the Congress or, because I'm trying to, like, in, in my, oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think it's both. It's just important to not, not assume that Congress passing laws or changing the authorization necessarily means the U.S. will stop its wars. And in past U.S. military and author activities, we've definitely seen Even when Congress asserts itself, the executive can often have the capability to push back on that, whether it's, I mean, whether it's legal or not, but that's how we got the Iran-Contra affair, the secret bombings of Cambodia. There's not necessarily the situation in which Congress has complete control over the war powers, so, and certainly not in the way Congress has been acting regarding how willing it has been to assert its role in determining war powers. But that's not a reason not to emphasize congressional aspects. It would be a huge step if Congress were to reform or repeal initial authorizations. And one would hope that were Congress to do so, the executive would cooperate in what that would produce. But these are, to go back to like the core of Endless War is the objective and Application of military force. And if that hasn't changed, whatever the legal structure that is being used to explain why it's lawful to use force, that doesn't directly map onto the actual use of force and the objectives they are being used for, whether it's because of a dispute over who has authority in a particular situation, whether it's just because the United States or parts of the US are pursuing illegal wars, we need a conception of endless war that is broader than the specific legal structure, even if we recognize that in many ways the 2001 AUMF the 2001 AUMF is in many ways the birth of this endless war, or at the very least the core statement of the problem that allows it to keep going on and on.
0: So then if If legal constrainment is not the solution, what do you see as, I I don't even want to use the word solution, but what do you see as sort of taking steps in the right direction to limit and end endless war? What is, in your mind, what is kind of the, the baby steps that need to be taken or the leaps that need to be taken to end or mitigate endless war? So I think the core
1: of it is the decision makers who order the actual use of military force need to stop pursuing unachievable objectives and then set objectives that are achievable, whether those are objectives that might see continued use of military force or a larger pullback of objectives to just what exists now is sufficient for us, or even Um, more than sufficient for us, and we're going to stop fighting there and declare this war over. That's what really would end the endless war. Now, I think we're very far away from that. Even So, for example, Biden is committed to ending the forever wars as an aim of of his administration. But the way he phrases that makes it clear that the administration is not committed to stopping pursuing the objective of destroying or defeating al Qaeda. And I think in many ways, there's sort of political pressure that would come to bear if we had administrations that did come out and say, this is not a meaningful objective, we're done waging this war. And then anytime they wanted to use specific force actually sought congressional approval and laid out specific achievable objectives and took their lumps if they don't achieve them. But in terms of what, how we get there, what we can do in the meantime. I think repealing the AUMF is a core agenda item, even if it might be difficult to do. There's a number of proposals in Congress at the moment to repeal or replace the AUMF. Some of them are good. Some of them can actually extend the war. But that's an area of pressure that a lot of people are working on. I think it's important to make the wars we're fighting as transparent as possible. Which transparency doesn't necessarily mean wars will end, but it's a good way to, transparency is a good way to prevent the emergence of unclear objectives or shifting objectives. Mm -hmm. And even if that transparency is not so much about objectives, but how we're fighting the war, it can help fuel that challenge to sort of mission creep and covert conflicts that make it, that by definition, make objectives unclear. So I believe Senator Murphy has emphasized a lot his opposition to secret wars. I think opposition to secret wars should be a core principle. I think pressure on the government to release the actual data where the United States is conducting strikes, returning to the level of transparency around U.S. drone strikes under the Obama administration should be a baseline, but it should be expanded. The combatant commands should put out Press releases every time they conduct a strike. This press releases should include death assessments. That appears to be the case. With Africom is doing a pretty good job of that, although still criticisms of it. Subcom is really seems to have not been doing that to the same level. And also, there appears to be covert strikes in Yemen as well. So working on that would be important. I think it's worthwhile thinking about could there be an audit of the various U.S. wars, a governmental statement about here are the strikes we've conducted over this period, why we did those strikes, but we were thinking. Another thing to that extent is the U.S. would benefit significantly from a broad review commission of two decades in, where's the war on terror and how it's, has it been effective or not? And there is legislation that proposes at least a version of that that was attempted to be put into the NDAA, I believe, this past year, and I believe failed. But there's also calls for broader, more expansive commissions by figures like Matt Duss, who is Senator Sanders' is national security advisor, for a broader sort of 9 11 commission almost type review, but one that would include not just security figures, but also the impacted populations. And I think that's something that would be very worthwhile in generating transparency, both about what the U.S. has done, but also what U.S. objectives actually are and whether they're being achieved or are even conceptually achievable.
0: Awesome. So I think we've, we've gone over a lot today. And as per tradition, before we leave for the day, leave us with something to think about something to the audience to kind of chew on to, you know, to think about really.
1: Yeah. So I think one thing I'd like to leave people with is there's a lot of discussion of endlessness and wars. And this report is obviously about endlessness. And I think we, most people I think have at least some moral revulsion to the concept of fighting an endless war. But We really need to also think of endlessness as only one aspect of a war that might be objectionable. And we could envision wars that are short, involve achievable objectives that the U.S. achieves, yet are still immoral, pursued for aims that place American lives at a vast higher aspect of importance than those the U.S. kills abroad. And... That needs to be a separate strand of sort of criticism of the wars. And while I think endlessness is an essential point of criticism, and while you might imagine a war where continuing to fight it without a vision of an end in sight might be moral, that that isn't really the case with the US. Examples of that tend to involve people who are facing a very stark threat. So there is something deeply problematic, both in strategic terms and moral terms, of the endlessness of America's wars. But the criticism of them should also include questions of whether the very idea of a war on terror or what the United States seeks to achieve abroad is itself moral or reasonable. And that's important to think about as we see endlessness become something, hopefully, that is increasingly part of the public discussion. Be wary of people for whom endlessness is the horizon of their commitment or criticism of America's wars, for whom short wars that may be devastating is not worrisome, and for whom the human impact of America's wars and conflicts abroad does not require Um, moral recompense in aspects like refugee admittances, efforts to help the societies that have been destroyed by the wars recover. That endless war is now common used by the past three presidential administrations, Obama, Trump, and Biden in some form, or at least an analogous term like forever war, should be welcomed, should be forced to actually mean Endless war as a meaningful concept, but we have so much more to ask for or demand.
0: Awesome. On that note, my guest today is David Sturman, and he's the author of "Defining Endless Wars: The First Steps, the First Step Towards Ending Them." We'll have a link up when we publish the show. Great conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you.